The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So since uh, January, I have been giving giving talks on uh, the primary instructions that the Buddha gave on mindfulness practice. And uh, it's a uh, one of the longer texts, uh, and probably the longest text uh, or scripture in early Buddhism uh, that gives meditation instruction. And uh, when I was first introduced to this text many years ago, I found I found it deadly boring, and uh, probably fell asleep reading it. Probably didn't have a very high opinion of it because of the formulaic kind of way in which it was written and style and things like that. But as I then was introduced to the mindfulness tradition, the mindfulness uh, practice that we do in part of insight meditation, then slowly this um, uh, text started to come alive for me. And now uh, I find it immensely interesting. And I find that it has all these nuances or, or depths or uh, different aspects to it that uh, continue to come alive for me, and I find it uh, quite a quite a wonderful, inspiring text. And so I've been giving a series of talk for these months uh, on this text and going through it systematically. And uh, today will be the last talk in the series. And uh, one of the themes I presented as I did this was to uh, view the or interpret the the instructions as uh, describing a journey, that a uh, journey of mindfulness. And maybe uh, I could, given my own life, I would, I'm quite happy to call it the adventure of mindfulness. It's been uh, a journey, an adventure, a wonderful discovery, the process of mindfulness and, and uh, having l- my life open up, the life of the world open up in wonderful ways through this practice. So, um, <clears throat> what this is using, what mindfulness uses, is our human capacity for attention. It's a completely ordinary capacity to be aware, but we're using it uh, kind of intentionally, and we're using it in such a way that the awareness uh, over time is set free. The mindfulness practice is a practice of liberating our awareness. So what does that mean? Um, if um, uh, this afternoon uh, I went on a, a few websites uh, to look at car tires. The car tire, the, t- the front tires of my car are getting pretty worn down. And when I, last time I checked the oil, they looked at me and shook their head. <laughs> you know, you should really do something. So uh, I then got interested in seeing where in the Redwood City I could buy car tires and what was available and where's the good deal and a variety of things. And uh, it was a relatively relaxing to do, but it involved a certain kind of attention. I had the kind of, I was I don't know if required, but. I had a certain kind of focused attention, 
attention that was trying to understand uh, the details of car number, car tire numbers and sizes and thread types and I don't know, all kinds of things. And then trying to hold it in my mind to be able to compare it to another merchant's, what they're selling and to, you know, try to decide where to go. And it was a relatively common thing to do. But uh, I was very aware of my attention being very focused, very directed. And I would say that I had some attachments involved, some concern with getting the right price in the best place and a little bit, you know, kind of, kind of in the little, a teeny bit of the mind vice of concern about this little mundane topic and to do this well. So, so that's just getting tires, right? So I think that uh, some of us will have other things which are much more, uh, pulls, pulls us much more strongly into its world where there is much more attachment and concern. And some people go around all the time with concerns that their attention has been pulled into. Does it need to be a little bit louder, the sound yes. today? Can we turn it up a little bit? So uh, is that better? Okay. And if not, just go like that. Um, so the um, so uh, some people, and I, you know, I've certainly had this happen to me, where hours, maybe days, maybe lifetimes, uh, the mind is really fixated and concerned with certain things. Some of this stuff can be just habit or conditioning, or that's really been built in from a young age. Uh, some people uh, grow up in hor- horrible conditions and they grow up with fear and the, their attention is is hooked into, maybe fixated into, or the mind vice of it has grabbed the attention and it's concerned with how to be safe. And it's scanning the horizon, scanning the room, the situation. And, and it's always kind of caught in the vice of being afraid and wanting to be safe and it's a you know it's probably a very important thing to do at some point in their life. They probably maybe even saved their lives, but to always have the mind in that vice, uh, or to have it said differently, if awareness is always being put into that channel of fear and concern and looking for safety, the awareness is not is not free. If it's desire. Uh, I've had desires of various type. When I was very young, I had caught in the grip of lust, I remember, with doing things that, you know, that was kind of really, I was captivated by this, like a woman or something, a girl. And uh, I've told this story before, I'll give you an example of a preoccupation of the mind and how intense maybe it can be, kind of, you know, just like the attention was really drawn to. I met this woman the girl. I was 14, so I was a boy. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and all I knew was her first name. And I'd kind of walked her home, I think, something like that. Um, and all I had was, I had the first name and I had the street she lived on. And so I went with a friend and, uh, and we had two telephone books that's all we had back then to look people up. And uh, I went from the front of the book and he went from the back of the book. 
and we called every, everyone who lived on that street and asked for her name. <laughs> so, <laughs> I would say that at 14, doing that, my attention was not free. <laughs> it was in this, you know, mind vice of concern about whatever that 14-year-old mind is concerned with there. You can use your imagination. Or not. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, it can be all kinds of things. So, so they can be chronic, these concerns. They can be uh, serial concerns, one after the other. And, um, and the mind is kind of... And some people talk about the mind getting hijacked by these current concerns. Um, and we see somehow that the mind, the attention, the awareness is not so free when we start to meditate. Because we sit down, the instructions might be to sit down and meditate and let go of your thoughts and focus your attention on your breathing. And people discover how difficult that is, that the mind wanders off. And when the mind wanders off, the attention wanders off, gets lost in something, in a sense, the attention's been hijacked. In a sense, something besides your own conscious volition has grabbed your attention, your attention is caught in that concern, whatever it might be. It might be a fantasy, it might be an aversion, it might be a conversation, it might be a memory. So many things that get pulled into, but, um, and sometimes being pulled into it is quite intense. And uh, some people, it's very hard to get out, or some people will get, go, go into that world and we talk about uh, being lost in thought. That's a quite powerful expression, I was lost in thought. You know, sitting in meditation, I was lost the whole time, I was lost in thought. And, Luckily, they rang the bell. And, and so then I kind of, you know, well, where was I? And um, so the attention is not free. Something has the attention. As we begin consciously waking up, consciously waking up to using our attention, engaging it to notice what's happening in the present moment, we begin a process of liberating our awareness. So the awareness is no longer uh, held captive by our desires, our fears, our hates, our preoccupations, our all kinds of things that, you know, it grabs it. And it's a phenomenal thing to begin to, dis- begin to discover what a free awareness is like, a liberated awareness is like. An awareness which has uh, uh, not been caught by societies, attachments to what society thinks we should be concerned with or what society kind of throws at us is not concerned about our own, what our own inner life throws at us and grabs our attention. And for the awareness to become free, I liken it sometimes to if you held your hand in a fist for 35 years and you never knew it was possible to open it up, and then finally someone said, by the way, you could open it up. And so, oh, wow. Not only is it pretty good, it feels good to finally have it relaxed and open, but the sensitive part of the hand is now available to feel the world, to be in touch with the world. That it's not if you make a fist. So the same thing with the mind. The mind, the attention can be held in a kind of a fist, in a preoccupation, be caught in things. And to start feeling the fist of the mind open up, not only does it feel really good for it to be relaxed, lo and behold, 
the sensitive part of the mind, of the heart, becomes available to connect to the world and connect to oneself. To be, for the attention to be caught in the grip of its preoccupations means that there's a kind of disconnect or loss of sensitivity, a narrowing of attention, a narrowing of our way of being connected to ourselves and the world and what goes on. And as awareness starts becoming free, then we start discovering we can use it in different ways. And we can use it in ways that are useful. We can use it in ways that are specific to different circumstances, in ways that bring ease, that meets the situation properly, and that uh, can help us understand what's going on. So part of the mindfulness adventure is an adventure of understanding. And in terms of meditation practice, a lot of that is understanding ourselves, understanding what drives us, understanding how we get caught, understanding our, uh, our, our beliefs that we have that grab us and hold us, uh, understanding our, how emotions work for us, and learning, learning a lot about how our thoughts and cognitive world works. And the more we start learning about this um, and understanding how we work, we have more information about what what's going on in here, and that gives us more choice. You don't have much choice about things you do if you don't know you're doing them. And so uh, there's many times that people say things without even being aware of what they're saying. We think things without even thinking about it. We have beliefs that are operating that are, you know, underneath the surface. Uh, We have unconscious bias that goes on. The subconscious, I like to say, because it it can become conscious. And all this stuff that's going on inside of us that uh, can be quite unconscious or subconscious or not known. And, and then you have no choice. But if you see what's going on, you begin to be able to exer- exercise choice. And one of the most important forms of choice we have, partly so we can keep it really simple, is we have the veto power. You can't necessarily decide and choose, you know, what's the wisest tire to buy, <laughs> you know, or all these decisions. But you can decide, you know, right now I think I, I don't want to make the situation worse. I'm going to be quiet. I'm not going to speak. I find my mind is going down some thought train, where I have aversion towards someone. I'm not going to do that anymore. I've, I've done that for 35 years. And it didn't lead anywhere. It did no good for me. I'm not going to go down that track anymore. And so, uh, and so this idea of saying, no, I'm not going to invest in this. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to hold my mouth. I'm going to hold my body and not give in to that kind of thing one more time. That's a powerful thing. And the Buddha, early Buddhist tradition, the Buddhist tradition puts a tremendous value on our human capacity to have the veto power. What that allows is it allows our awareness to continue to become freer. Our inner life becomes freer because we're not being hijacked or pulled into um, all these drives and forces and that are operating that sometimes pull us into them so quickly. And so there's a freedom to be said, no, I'm not doing that. So that comes from understanding, and that's a choice. That comes greater self-understanding, greater choice we have. One of the things we begin seeing is we start seeing how, we're, how attention is, in fact, 
uh, influenced or caught in our attachments, how we get fixated. And to see that really clearly is the beginning of a path to become free of the fixations. One of the things we see when we start paying more attention, and also if the attention is more free to see what's really going on, one of the things we see is we start seeing our suffering. And one of the things that Buddhist practice specializes in is not suffering better, because that doesn't do any good, but rather understanding, seeing our suffering better. And, uh, and looking at it directly and being very honest about it. And not sliding away from it, not avoiding it, not making it pretty. But really an honest look at what's really going on with my suffering here. Now if we're doing that with this eye towards awareness being free, we'll discover how when we suffer, we're not that free. Many times we're caught in our fear, or being running away from it, or preoccupied with it, or taking it personally, or having self-pity, or having anger, or having blame, and all kinds of secondary things arise, and they happen so strongly in such an automatic pilot kind of way that awareness kind of gets sucked into its kind of demands or its needs, and the, our suffering prevents awareness from being free. As we begin discovering to be aware, I'm suffering. It's bad enough to suffer. Let me see if I cannot lose my awareness in that process. And to be able to step back in a sense and look suffering right in the eye, but suffering staying free, suffering not being reactive to what we're seeing, the the awareness not being reactive, the awareness being open, kind of, in a sense, maybe spacious, maybe relaxed, maybe clear, maybe receptive. But in some ways, it's being, it's kind of like if the, if the door is open uh, and someone throws a ball against the door, uh, it doesn't bother the door. <laughs> it just goes right through. If the w- doors of awareness are really open, no matter what happens, even our suffering can be experienced as if kind of it's kind of like doesn't t- touch anything in the freedom. There's 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 space there. There's openness there. And so, as this mindfulness journey continues, and we start understanding nature of awareness and how awareness operates, and awareness starts getting freer and freer, we start seeing our reactivity much better. We get more and more sensitive to the subtleties of it. We get much more aware of what it feels like to be free. Uh, we get much more respectful of our lives because respect has a lot to do with taking a deeper look. The literal meaning of respect in Latin, this Latin-based word, is to uh, look again, to take a, de- a deeper look. And when, a, when awareness is caught and is forced to kind of go in certain directions and think certain things, awareness is not that free to look again. But to really be free allows a deeper and deeper look. And as we look more deeply, we see the deeper forms of attachments, of suffering that we have, and we find ways to free it and liberate it. And so this uh, path of mindfulness is a path of learning how to use attention. And there's different kinds of attention that we learn to use. Sometimes we learn to uh, recognize what's happening there. 
clearly recognize and study and investigate what's happening here. Other times we're learning an awareness that's kind of like an awareness that's kind of metaphorically like leaning up against a tree on a nice day, have no concerns and problems whatsoever, and just kind of having a beautiful view of the park in front of you. It just kind of relaxed and at ease and open, spacious, wide observation. Um, Other times uh, we discover that awareness is a deep, deep intimacy with the experience where we really feel and sense the sensations, the physicality, uh, the embodiment of what's happening in the moment in a very sensory way. And uh, it's just fantastic sometimes to feel like you're right in the middle of the sensory world of the body and the experience we have and making space for that world to open up and to reveal itself. So as this practice deepens, awareness gets more and more liberated. As, a le- as awareness gets liberated, there's less baggage involved in being aware. And what less baggage involves, m- what it means, is we don't bring along with awareness a lot of our ideas of what should be, what shouldn't be, uh, our judgments of things, our history with things. We're able to start seeing things much more simply for what they are. And in some situations in life, like in meditation, that opens up deeper and deeper doors to have awareness with not, without any baggage. One of the ways the meditation uh, tradition talks about this awareness with no baggage is that awareness is no longer um, colored or filtered by a lot of concepts, abstract ideas of something. The idea of, of right and wrong, good and bad, is usually not a very useful concept with which to see your experience when you're meditating. Uh, to see your experience when you're meditating through the f- lens of me, myself, and mine. So I'm sitting here meditating and uh, my mind drifts off in thought and the thought, you know, that's to just simply see that, oh, my mind just drifted off. That could be very simple and clean uh, moment awareness, just see that. Versus my mind just wandered off and I am a lousy meditator. I just blew it, I did the wrong thing, I didn't follow the instructions, and I hope no one noticed. You know, that's a lot of baggage that comes along with the awareness. And so we learn to make less and less baggage. It's simpler and simpler. And this idea of seeing things as we meditate in a simpler and simpler way actually allows us to see things much more clearly. And, uh, and as this clarity comes along, then uh, the mind becomes freer. It's this wonderful reciprocal relationship. The clearer we can see, the freer awareness is. The freer awareness is, the clearer we can see, and we can go further on that journey. One of the consequences f- uh, of this is, as a meditation journey is the inner life tends to become more and more peaceful. It becomes a greater stillness, beautiful, sweet stillness and quiet, a quiet within. The mind becomes quieter, stiller. The mind becomes more equanimous, more peaceful, non-reactive, all in the service of looking and seeing more carefully, all in the service of having, having awareness be set free. And at some point, the equanimity, the peacefulness, the ease, the non-reactivity 
starts feeling like a home. The Buddha called mindfulness our original home. Now, he didn't actually use the word home. He called it our native land. I like the word home. But our native, if you want to go to your native land, uh, you go to mindfulness. Mindfulness is our native land. Uh, the, the kind of awareness, attention that mindfulness is. To rest in awareness, to feel at home in it, to feel like that you're really, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're in your, you're in your true place, and you're at ease. And awareness is not hijacked, not caught by anything, and you can rest in that. It means that you can carry your home with you anywhere you go. It's a phenomenal thing to discover. So as the mind feels at home in itself, awareness feels at home in itself. It's not caught in anything anymore. Awareness is at ease. It's at rest. It's free. It can be look at different things. It can be used in different ways. It gets more and more equanimous, more peaceful. And as it gets peaceful enough, uh, at some point, the last remnants of attachment let it let go. At some point, the last ways in which the mind tries to actively do things and make things and fix things and solve things is put to rest. And that final movement of being put to rest or the final movement of the, the ropes of attachment finally being worn thin and just snapping free uh, is one of the descriptions of where this path of mindfulness goes and it's called liberation. Uh, I'll, I'll, so I'll read you the, uh, the, the last paragraph of this text that I've been doing these last months. Um, um, so he's just finished talking about this practice of mindfulness. So that's the this that you'll hear in this. Uh, so it was with reference to this that I said, the Buddha is quoting the Buddha, so in reference to this that I said, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of, of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true method and for the realization of Nibbana. Nibbana is our Pali way of saying Nirvana. This is a phenomenal promise or phenomenal kind of the good news of this tradition, of this practice. And uh, it's described one way. So it's not talking about cosmic consciousness. It's not talking about some very deep insight into the nature of consciousness or uh, you know, some true nature that we have. Um, it's ta- it, but it's talking about something that I, I think is phenomenally significant. If you can attain this, you'll live happily, you know, with or without cosmic consciousness or something like that. Not talking about some big bang experience of meditation, you know, some big kind of insight into satori or something. Um, they're talking about a transformation. And the practice of mindfulness, this journey of mindfulness is a journey towards a transformation. And the transformation happens all along the way, but then at some point, there's a kind of a quantum leap in the transformation. And this is the quantum leap leads to this. So I'll read it again. 
this, this mindfulness, is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true method, and for the realization of Nibbana, namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. So that's been what the whole thing's been about, these four areas of mindfulness. And so then, um, how long does it take to do this? And, um, you know, this must be really hard, right? It'll take a long time. So the Buddha says this. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in this way for seven years, one of two fruits should be expected. Either they'll attain final knowledge, full liberation, here and now, or if there is little little traces of clinging left, they'll attain something almost as good. That's a paraphrase. (laughs) seven years but who has seven years there's important websites to visit and (laughs) books to read and let alone seven years if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness for as in such a way for six years and then dot 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 it's supposed to fill in what I just read before for five years, for four years, for three years, for two years, for one year, one of two fruits should be expected, either final knowledge here or now, or if there is some small traces of clinging left, something almost as good. Mm-hmm. Then the Buddha said, goes on, but let alone one year, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month. See why I was bored before (laughs) when I first read it. But now I think it's exciting. It's like, where where, where are we going? (laughs) Um, For one month, for half a month, one of two fruits should be expected. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there's some trace of clinging left, something almost as good then let alone half a month if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days one of two fruits should be expected either final knowledge here and now or if there is a trace of clinging left something almost as good and um, so seven years seven days do you have seven days to give to this? Usual the interpretation is that, yes, it can be done in seven days, but you have to give yourself over to those seven days, all, to the practice of mindfulness, all your waking hours. And people who do seven, we teach a lot of seven-day retreats, and I, people practice well and good, but uh, I, there's very few people who really do it, you know, 100% for those seven days. So I think the idea is you have to really give yourself over to it. Otherwise, it takes two weeks <laughs> or a month or, you know, seven years or something. Um, and um, there was a, a wonderful teacher named Sylvia Borstein. And um, 
she practiced uh, for a long time, and she, I think she was. I think I think I know how she tells a story. She was kind of just kind of coasting along, and maybe a little bit complacent in her practice. And then she heard this little teaching, and um, I think it was teaching came from the Buddha, and um, and that is that um, if a a, sh- a ship a boat might have a really thick rope that's maybe holding something up, you know, maybe mooring rope or holding sail up or something, really thick and strong. But, you know, it's at sea, it's years there in the weather and all that stuff. And slowly it begins to wear away and wear away. And at some point, the no one can really know, it'll become thin enough, it'll just snap. It'll break apart. But you never know when you're getting to that point. It just kind of, at some point, it just happens. And so she heard that this is how it works with this mindfulness practice. You're wearing away your attachments, your clinging, the ways in which the mind is caught, and those are wearing, wearing away. But um, you might be just one day away from the attachments finally just poofing. You, you might, you never quite know it might be really about to happen. It might be, you know. And isn't that just supposed to be waiting there like a mouse at the cat door for it to happen? That doesn't work. But, um, but that inspired Sylvia to no end. Okay, I, I don't know how close I am or how close. So she then really gave herself over to the practice and was no longer complacent, kind of lackadaisical in her practice. And that made all the difference for her. Um, and, you know, then her practice uh, bore fruit for her. So... The end of the, uh, the book, the end of the instructions, talks about how this practice of mindfulness is the practice that leads to liberation, the spiritual liberation that Buddhism champions, what made the Buddha an enlightened person. And the remarkable thing about this is that the key element to this liberation is your own normal, ordinary capacity for awareness. So you have the tool. It's not like a foreign tool to you. But you have to learn to use that tool and develop that tool and to uh, free that tool from the ways in which it gets caught in or hijacked or caught in preoccupations and concerns. And that can be done. And it's a, you know, it's a grand goal, the goal of liberation, nirvana and ibana. The path, the, the very best way to do this is to value, appreciate, enjoy every step on the path to that. It's a fantastic way to live a life, to live on this journey, the adventure of mindfulness. And every day you do it is a good day, is worthwhile. No amount of mindfulness is ever wasted. And ideally, as people are learning to do this mindfulness, each moment that the awareness is felt to be a little bit more free. Or we, we use mindfulness, we use a, a freed awareness. Just let, you know, I'm here, I'm aware of my suffering, I'm aware of this difficult situation, but let me be mindful of it. And in that recognition of mindfulness, there's some freedom there. That's worthwhile in its own right. That's a life well lived. So I say this because there is this grand goal at the end of the tunnel, end of the rainbow, or end of the, you know, 
of liberation. That is a real goal. It's valuable. It's it's a it's a noble direction to take a life. But enjoy each step along the way. Each step along the way is worthwhile, is valuable, and doesn't really, from the point of view of the value moment by moment, it doesn't really matter if you get to the end of this path. It just matters you're on it. It's a beautiful thing to be on this adventure and this path. And uh, I think that it tends to bring out the best in people. And to the degree to which the best that you are is still laying dormant in you, you'll find that if you, the more you practice the mindfulness and free your, your awareness, that what's best in you will become available for the world as a gift. And hopefully, in doing this, you'll make a world a better place. So that was the final talk. And we have 10 minutes before the usual ending. And uh, if any of you have any questions, comments about this, I don't know how many of you have been through, you know, been along for the whole, you know, it's been like five months of talks now. So what that's like to have gone through it or anything you'd like to ask. Um, I like this idea of attention baggage. Often I can see myself responding to a phenomenon out in the world, and I can see myself responding in that response and not like it. And then I very quickly, without, without words, just avoid it or get angry or frustrated with that response, get afraid of that response, without any words. So it's like a, I'm trapped in that meta level of responding to the initial phenomenon. I feel like that's a, my, that's a, a tension baggage that I carry with me a lot. Yeah. Do you have any tips on how to get out of that kind of... Yeah, great. The, well described. I think one of the best things you can do is get to know it better. That to turn your mindfulness... To, if, there's a, if there's a so-called problem about how you operate, how, what you do, turn your attention to look at it more carefully. Get to know it better. And uh, the freedom comes from seeing it clearly in two ways. It comes from actually learning how it works and learning the tricks and what, how, it get, how you get caught in it and what's really going on and what the emotions are underneath it and what drives it. But also um, what you learn is that awareness itself can hold it, the, prob- the so-called problem, and see it in such a way that you're free while you're looking at it. Does that make sense? I'll have to think about it. Look, don't think about it. Look at it. <laughs> yeah, over there in the, by the windows. Hi. Um, so the uh, the analogy of the of the rope that slowly gets worn away and then you know, at some moment breaks um, sort of suggests that the sort of moment of liberation is, is, a, is a moment 
Um, yes, it's usually underst- usually understood to be a, a particular moment. It's something 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 uh, gets released. And uh, uh, my favorite translation into English of the word nirvana is release. There's, there's a release that happens. And so is uh, is that uh, non-reversible? So like once the release <laughs> happens, does it ever go back? <laughs> In uh, the, the the full liberation is non-reversible. Full liberation, there's no more clinging. The, 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 what's being released is the clinging, so the clinging doesn't come back. Um, uh, the, uh, generally, the first dramatic experience people have of the hand opening up um, is memorable, shows them what's possible, and four of the five fingers still want to close up. But now we know what's possible. And that makes all the difference because we know the direction, we know what's possible. We didn't really, even though we've heard about it and read about it, now we really know for ourselves, well, that's what they're talking about. And so now we're inspired to practice more and it might take a while for the other fingers to begin opening up, or metaphorically, right? So, um, so generally that first dramatic experience doesn't do all the work but it really shows the way. Hi, Gail. So, um, you talk about this whole teachings like a journey. Okay. And in the past five months, you said there's a 13 steps. Yes. Each step. So, um, there's so much of it. And when we practice, do we go step by step? Or there's so many things. For example, sometimes we focus on the body, uh-huh. the feeling will come up. Yes. The, the thought will come. Uh-huh. So, um, I just wonder what's the best way to yeah. practice. I think that uh, most people who teach out of this text uh, will uh, not teach all the exercises. And usually they'll uh, pick, the, pick a few of the parts of it that they specialize in. So some teachers will mostly specialize in the first foundation, the body. Some will specialize in the third foundation, the one in the mind. Some will specialize more in the fifth, in the, in the fourth foundation. Um, and um, the um, and so there's different choices. People use this. It's more like this is like the grab bag of practices. Uh, and so it's very few people I know who go through these 13 exercises systematically the way it's laid out. It's possible. It could be quite effective. But I've never known anyone to teach that way, except in Dharma talks like here. And um, and so uh, so it depends who you're who you're studying with, how they will teach this. And so f- uh, for me, uh, the way I like to teach this and the way I was, I was taught this when I was, uh, learned this in Burma is, um, is, uh, is that um, uh, it's, you focus on the breathing and if any of the other foundations come up and are more predominant than the breathing, you let go of the breath and turn the attention to that phenomenon. So it's not systematic. It's not like you have to memorize these steps and know where to go. 
uh, reality tells you where you bring your attention. So you have to, you don't even have to make a choice except it's time to leave the breath and now focus on the emotion or now now it's time to leave the breath and focus on the body or or the mind or whatever it might be. And then when it's no longer, no longer compelling, we come back to the breathing. And the reason I like teaching it that way, there's other ways of practicing that are quite good for not 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 no one practice is right for everybody. But the, one of the reasons why I like to teach this is that uh, it keeps the attention coming back to the breathing, which um, uh, is a is a practice that also develops concentration. And it really helps to have a lot of concentration to do this practice. So the more concentration we can build up, uh, the stronger the mindfulness and clearer the mindfulness can be. So stay with the breathing until something else. Um, About the refrain, Um, you taught something about the refrain. Is that, you said it's repeated 13 times? You have to be a little bit louder. The refrain. The refrain, yes. Yeah. You said it's being repeated 13 times. Yes, it's very important. In the sutta, yeah. Is is that um, a set of principle we're supposed to use with, to apply, not use, to apply with each step or whatever we're practicing on? I think that um, the refrain has a number of functions. Um, but one of the functions is it's a little bit of a map of what is imp- what is kind of important to notice. So one of the, one of the things it says is uh, notice how things come and go. And not everyone is uh, not every mind is tuned in to rising, noticing things arising and disappearing. Uh, because when we're many, if we're involved with our concepts, our ideas of things, there's a funny way in which concepts and ideas can lend permanence to what we're concerned with. And we know it's not permanent, but in the moment we're sitting here, it might feel like this is it. Um, you know, like, uh, um, I mean, there was a, many years ago, I, I uh, came to the conclusion that um, I was depressed and I'd never not be depressed. This is how it's going to be. This, I'm, I'm stuck. This is, the t- this is it. That's kind of, and I was operating emotionally from this point of view that this is it. This I'm going to be depressed forever. But if you if you really if you if, it's, if you know and my awareness was held hostage by that depression. I was I, get, I, I, I surrendered my awareness to my depression. I kind of let it sink into it and be taken over. To to learn how to pull the awareness out of something like depression and really see it, like step away, turn around, really look at that's depression and see it. And then start looking at it more carefully and not with the baggage of ideas and stories and time and all this. After a while you start seeing actually you're not depressed all the time. It's It's actually coming in and out of existence continuously but it's not always there. There's little flash moments, it's not there, flash moments, it's there. And that's a whole different game. It's a whole different world to live in as opposed to the idea, I'm stuck, this is it. And so, and so the way, way that refrain talks about, it's kind of like saying, this is important to notice the coming and going of things. And at some point as people meditate to have that as a guideline can help them kind of deepen the meditation further. The other thing the refrain says is that 
is it kind of it's another description of the goal of practice, of where we're, where we're going. It's kind of like the this is the north star. This is what we're you know we're kind of being guided by this goal, and that goal is a wonderful way to end this whole series now at nine o'clock, and that goal is to um, um, do, uh, is to live without clinging to anything in the world. That's where it's going. To dwell without clinging to anything in the world. And to use the language of this talk today, to dwell without awareness attached to anything whatsoever. And what in the world is awareness that has no attachment to what it's aware of? And you might want to reflect on this and ponder and imagine and visualize and what it what would it be like for you to have an attention and whatever attention knows the attention itself is not attached to what it knows awareness that is free of what it knows may it be so so thank you very much